Welcome to the Open Adoption Project. This is episode 79. We're the Nelsons. I'm Lynette. And I'm Sean. In today's episode, we have an interview with Eileen Scahill. Eileen is an adjunct professor at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and she does a lot of research around adoption, but she also works in environmental impact, and she'll share a little bit about that um, in the interview itself. But we're really excited to have her. She is an adoptee, she's an adoption researcher, and she's actually currently doing a research project with adoptees that we think some of our listeners might be really interested in. Yes, so in the show notes we have some information about that, but do you want to share a little bit more right now? Sure, yeah. So she is, and she'll tell a little bit about this at the end of the episode, but she is trying to show the good and bad or the the dark and the light in adoption experiences. We know that there's just a mixed bag of feelings and emotions. And she is a photographer uh, by profession as well. And so she is trying to capture images of adoptees in the places where they find the most peace. And she also does an interview along with that um, to be able to tell the story with an image. And it sounds like a really awesome project. And so she's looking for adoptees around the United States. Um, She's going to do an initial interview with them about 30 minutes. And then if they're selected to be part of the study, then she'll fly out to that place, do a lengthy interview, and then do a photo shoot. Yeah, it sounds really neat. And so we're really excited to share that opportunity with any of our listeners who are adoptees who are interested in that. If you're interested in participating in her study, you can reach out to her through email. Her email address is escahill at uccs.edu, and that's E-S-K-A-H-I-L-L. So um, that's also in the show notes if you want to get in contact with her if you're interested in participating. And we're really excited to jump to her episode and share some of her thoughts and experiences. So we'll go ahead and jump right now to Sean's discussion with Eileen. We are now on the podcast with Eileen Scahill. Eileen, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's my honor and pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. And just for our listeners, uh, Eileen and I had the chance to talk probably six months ago or so. Maybe it's been longer than that, actually. Maybe longer. And yeah. uh, we had a great conversation. And I'm glad that we can connect now on the podcast and that people yeah. get to hear your experience, and also some of the great work that you're doing. So um, let's go ahead and get started with just an introduction. Help us get to know you a little better. Oh, okay, sure. So um, I am an adoptee uh, and a closed adoption in 1966. Um, I'm also an adjunct professor of sociology, and my areas of emphasis are on adoption and family studies and courses in um, uh environment, um, looking at looking at climate change and environmental justice through a sociological lens. And um, I've been in academia for about 13 years. Uh, I have two grown daughters um, who are in their 20s. And I'm also a photographer. So mostly wildlife, landscape and social documentary photography. So I think that's yeah, that that about does it, I think. Awesome. Well, um, share with us a little bit about your personal journey through being an adoptee. Well, uh, let's see. I, I said before, I'm, uh, 
was adopted in 1966 after six months in an orphanage. Um, my parents adopted me. Um, and before me, they adopted three other um, children. All of us are two years apart and none of us are biologically related. So all adopted from different families. Um, so it was a little crazy. Uh, and, you know, some of my siblings had issues with substance use and, you know, were in and out of incarceration over their adult, young and early adult lives. So there was a lot of chaos. I was the youngest of four, obviously. So I f felt a little bit, you know, off the radar um, because there was so much other stuff going on in our household. But um, yeah, I... It was, um, it's been an interesting journey. I mean, it's a lifelong thing. Um, I would say that I'm kind of finally maybe coming to, I don't know, not to grips with my adoptive experience at 56, but maybe starting to make sense of it fully, yeah. um, to where, to where I feel a little more whole about it all. But I also went through reunion with both paternal and maternal sides of my family, both birth parents and their extended families. That was um, difficult, complicated. I bet. Um, and um, I don't have relationships with those folks anymore. But I was in reunion, you know, I think with my, you know, with both of them around about a decade, a little over a decade. So we gave it a yeoman's effort for sure. Um, but yeah, we don't have connection any longer. Um, so yeah, my adoption journey you know, it's partly why I got into focusing on that and, and my academic work, because I really wanted to explore whether other people were having similar experiences as I was. Uh, and so a lot of my research was really founded on that um, uh, and why I chose to um, focus on certain areas of research. So, yeah, um, I mean, adoption is complicated. And my experience in adoption and reunion was nothing short of complicated. Um, uh, so yes, but at, at my age now, I feel like I'm finally maybe <laughs> done with, um, <laughs> some of the layers that adoption creates. Like, I think I've peeled a good number of them off, but you know, you never know it grows overnight yeah. even when you don't fertilize it. So, um, yeah, but that's kind of my story. Okay. Uh, that's probably good. Do you mind if I ask you a couple follow-up questions? Of course, sure. So you're, the, you're the first person that we've interviewed that has said that they were in an orphanage um, yeah. before they were adopted, um, mm -hmm. at least in the United States. Do you What do you know around that situation? Do you know many of the details of the orphanage experience you had? Uh, not really. I mean, obviously I was young, but those first six months are really formative months in terms of creating trust with you know, creating trust period. Yeah. Right. Um, and it was not uncommon for, so my mother, uh, my birth mother was obviously young. She was, I think 18 and just out of high school. And she was sent to a home for unwed mothers, the, um, uh, and then delivered in the Mary Donaldson clinic there, um, in Denver. So, it wasn't unusual for babies that weren't placed right away to end up in an orphanage, which was structurally not very far away from um, where these, the home for unwed mothers and where they delivered. Uh, I did try to um, 
that orphanage, well, that building now that housed babies at that time in the 60s is interestingly now a, um, like a sort of a facility that helps unwed mothers um, raise their kids, right? So teenage mothers, you know, like giving them training and helping them figure out, I don't know. I mean, it was a religious institution at the time. It was through Catholic Charities. So I don't, I don't think that that building, that that program is run through Catholic Charities anymore, but it's ironically housed women, you know, in those situations trying to help them cope with having a new baby that they may or may not intend to keep. I don't know the details of that, but yeah, I explored that really quite a long time ago. I never actually found the building itself, but I did spend some time. It was called Infants of Prague Orphanage. Okay. Um, And yeah, it doesn't exist anymore by that name obviously, but, um, yeah. And like, I obviously don't have any memories of those six months, but I do know from having had my own children, um, how critical those six months are in creating attachment and trust. Um, so I would say I, I was probably wired. Um, my wiring was very much a part of that experience, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, um, that's about all I know about it. I wish I had access to more information. Um, I interesting one of my aunts, my um, in my adoptive family, she when she was in high school, that was one of the things she did. She went to the infants of Prague, um, uh, you know, nursery orphanage and held babies. Um, and so, you know, she had some things to share with me about it before she passed away a number of years ago. Um, they weren't particularly it wasn't really great, a great narrative. Sure. Um, the holding was very brief mm. and, um, you know, they encouraged them not to get attached. So, really yeah. Um, yes. So, but, you know, in terms of memories, obviously I don't have them that young. Yeah. yeah I, I was just curious because we haven't really heard that in the U S and, uh, obviously there's so many pieces to the puzzle of the story and the, the more you can know and process and understand that kind of helps the holistic experience and understand yeah. and unpacking it. Um, so thank you for sharing that. That's, oh, of course. Yeah. Wrong. I'm sorry. I don't have more um, no. information. You know, I interviewed um, a young Ukrainian um, woman for the study that I'm doing now. Uh, and she spent her first 15 years in Ukrainian orphanages. And so it was really interesting for me to hear, I mean, even though it's not a U.S. orphanage, but just to hear about experience, orphanage experiences of, and she was 29, she's 29. So, and she has some pretty serious disabilities, but um, they're physical disabilities, but just the information she shared about her experience was, um, yeah, it was really, uh, I don't know. She both loved it and despised the experience. Yeah. You know, but, um, and, but she has great memories of that time and misses you know, her Aspects pal that, yeah. were in the orphanage with her. So yeah, like I hear you when you're saying like we, what wanting to know more is natural, right? Cause it's not really something we do so much anymore. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, it was a good question. I wish I had, you know, something deeper to share than that, but yeah. yeah. And then my other follow-up question to what you shared previously, and again, share as much or as little as you'd like, but okay. um, what led up to you um, reunifying with your birth parents? What did that kind of look like and feel like? And then you said that that kind of that relationship 
ended and maybe what precipitated some of that, if whatever you're comfortable sharing. Well, I decided to search when I was 37. I'd had both of my children by that time. Um, I was really prompted kind of by my physician who is a, was also a friend. Uh, she was helping another patient of hers search. And she's like, Eileen, you know, you should really search. And, and I was like, yeah, I should. Um, and I'm not surprised that I did because as a kid growing up, I, I knew where my parent, my adoptive parents kept my adoption information in their closet. Um, and I would go into the closet when I, when they were gone and, um, and, and rummage through what was on the shelf. Like I'd bring in something to, I was like eight, maybe nine or 10 years old. <laughs> and I had like a ladder. I got up on the shelf and I got this box down. I mean, what was in it was not anything identifying, which of course I'm sure they knew I was looking in there um, because I don't know. I probably left it a mess. Left the ladder in the <laughs> all right, Well, I got all that evidence out, but I'm sure, <laughs> I mean, you know, your parent, you know, you we know these things. So they probably knew and therefore didn't leave anything out that I could have really understood. But what was there, I took. So, um, and literally there wasn't much. Um, and it was just a few notes written on the back of like a checkbook um, deposit slip. I mean, it was really, I don't know. It was not in great detail nor, um, very thoughtfully written down, but, um, so knowing that about me kind of made me know that at some point I would do it. I mean, I'm just too curious. I'm just too inquisitive. I'm just too interested in having answers. So I don't like secrets. Um, partly why I do the work I do. So, yeah, I mean, she, my physician had prompted me to do it. It's not uncommon that women and some men will explore searching after they've had a child because that child is the first person they've ever seen that resembles them. Yeah. So it's a very common time for people to search, especially women. So I think, um, I don't know, everything sort of kind of came together in this confluence of I don't know. I just was like, let's do it. Um, my husband at the time who I'm no longer married to was very against it. Um, I also <laughs> two little kids. Uh, I think at that time they were like six and three and, um, you know, little kid, like, can you, can you create more chaos in your life? Um, when you have a little <laughs> child, it little is chaotic. Child, but, <laughs> but once it came around, I was like, I'm, you know, I, I was going to see it through despite having little kids, despite having a husband at the time who discouraged it, did not want it. Um, and so I did it. And, you know, this is before the internet. I was trying to, you know, and Catholic charities at that time did not have to reveal any identifying information. I mean, that OBCs have changed now in Colorado and they're open now, but um, original birth certificates. And so at that time in searching, um, I was, I paid for non-identifying information and, um, the little bit of information I had, um, I was able to find my birth father, um, by using the phone. Well, I hired a confidential intermediary to help me. I did not want to make any of those phone calls myself, but I just sort of deduced the geography. I was initially wrong with where I thought I was born. 
but this guy sort of steered me in the direction I needed to go. And, um, of course I lied about why I was calling him. Like I didn't want him to know. I didn't even know this guy, but I didn't want him to know what I was doing, which is also not uncommon, right? Like there's a lot of fear around being caught doing that kind of searching. So I was, wasn't truthful with him about what I was after. Um, but anyway, I had, um, located, uh, the town where both of my birth parents were from and which is in Canyon city, just like 70 miles South of where I am now. And I went and looked on the microfiche in the, like, if anybody even knows what that is anymore, but the microfilm and library. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I'm eight and dating myself, but I, I, you know, I, I went there and went into the library there and directed me to the basement with the microfilm. And I found, um, my birth mother there she had won a county beauty contest in 1969 or i don't know six or seven i don't even remember now before i was born um and uh that's how i found her was just looking through who won the county beauty contest in 1966 wow. <laughs> so yeah i mean you know there wasn't social media there wasn't the internet searching there wasn't ancestry there wasn't any of that but and i did that in within two weeks wow yeah. So you can see, I, you know, if I get something in my go get her, I usually make it happen. So, um, yeah, my mother though had, um, long story short, the intermediary found a cousin who on my mother's side or whatever, um, she had lied about who my birth father was. So I ended up meeting him first. Um, I look exactly like my birth, my actual birth father. They all went to high school together. So he knew right away when he saw me that I was not his daughter. Um, And my birth mother had married this man uh, who, not my real birth father, married him and never told him the truth that this child wasn't his. So long story short, I got caught up in, you know, the sort of backstabbing they were still doing with one another. Um, Obviously he was angry about being lied to and, so anyway, he confronted my actual birth father uh, and told him without my consent that he'd fathered a child. And and he my anyway. So, <laughs> yes. And those stories are not uncommon. Yeah. Um, no. Yeah, they're not. Um, my birth certificate has the name of the father who's not actually my father on it. So the it's actually documented there as um, as the wrong father. So. uh yeah, you know, I I went into reunion with my birth mother first. Um, I wasn't ready to find my birth father um, or have connection with him. I mean, my mother was finally honest with me about who he was, but I wasn't ready for that. And yeah, it was um, it was complicated from the get go. You know, lots of secrets and lies and. You know, I found out through someone else that my mother had had a son two years after me that she gave up. And it was it was rough. A lot of dishonesty right out the gate. And I was really young and um, eager, you know, wanting to make these connections that maybe I. um, The 56 year old in me now was thinking like, what in the were you thinking, (laughs) you know, you should have proceeded with much greater caution and slowed it down. Um, but you know, that's not who I was when I was 37. So, um, 
anyway, yeah, I don't know if I'm answering this. Um, yeah, no, it's one it's, concise it's, way, but so the reunion itself was, um, um, as most reunions, there's a honeymoon period. Everything's great for six ish months, seven months. Um, and then, like I said, my fictitious birth father outed my father who then I was sort of rushed into connecting with him before I was really ready. And I did, and I wasn't ready. Um, he also had two other daughters that, um, yeah, I had that voice in my head that was like, no, don't do this and don't do this now and don't do this at all. But I did it anyway. Um, and the relationships with my half sisters are very complicated. They were young in their twenties. They were not prepared for anything. You know, they felt all of those issues of um, jealousy and resentment and feeling like they lost their place in the hierarchy of like, now all of a sudden I became the oldest. Yeah. So the oldest daughter was like, Oh, we're not having this. So, um, those relationships didn't go well. Um, in fact, my half sister took her life earlier last year, um, which I found out on the internet. Nobody let me know that. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, they were really emotionally charged, um, connections and, and my father arguably didn't birth father did not have a good relationship with his daughters. So, you know, there are so many layers to reunion of which I adoptees have nothing to do with, you know, like right. that's not my circus and not my monkeys. Um, but I get, you know, by, by my arriving, I get kind of folded into all of that. Yeah. And so it makes things very complicated. And so the long and short of it was I kind of extricated myself from the reunions because they just weren't healthy for me. Um, you know, my marriage started dissolving, um, and it was probably on its way to doing that anyway, but this just sort of made it things worse. And, um, I was under a lot of stress. Uh, I'm very much an empath. So I'm was picking up on everyone's energy and, <laughs> and also feeling like everything was my fault. Right. Like I thought I never should have showed up and I, you know, I, caused all these problems for all these people, not to mention my own children. And it just was so stressful, so stressful. And it was before there was a lot of information about searching and it wasn't, you know, that was 23 years ago. Yeah. So, you know, I have to be kind to my younger self because I didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah. And, um, uh, but it got, so difficult that I knew I'm like, I gotta get out of this. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't easy, right? Cause you know, you're with folks for 10 or so years and there are things about it that, you know, I didn't want to walk away from. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was just another loss. Yeah. Yeah. So, well um, yeah, but uh, I'm on a kind of on the other side of it now, I think <laughs> on my good days. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was just, they're complicated. They're so complicated. And, um, and I didn't have the resources. 
Well, thank yeah. you for sharing. One, I think um, even just stating a moment ago, you didn't know what you didn't know um, is true for all of us. Right. But you sharing your experiences helps educate the community. Um, and so someone in a similar situation may think differently or approach in a situation differently because of the experience you just shared. So thank you for being oh, vulnerable right. and, and, and opening up and sharing what is really challenging and hard. And, um, yeah, that, I mean, you know, that's a long story. It could be, I could go on a whole bunch of directions with it, which aren't really necessary, but you're right. I mean, that's partly why I do the work I do. Like my, my, I didn't, in, did not have this experience in life, um, for it to not be useful in some way. Yeah. Well, we're going to jump into some questions sure. and sure. Um, just from the experience you've had and the work that you've done, we're going to get to the work you've done toward the end, but oh yeah, no, no, I'm cool. I'm, we're, um, I'm, we're, and I'm, I'm excited to, to jump into that, but um, many of the listeners of the podcast are potential adoptive parents. Um, what, what would you hope that they're considering as they're going into adoption potentially for the first time? Well, I'm not an adoption therapist. I have to put that right out there, right? So, so my um, perspectives come from a few different places. Um, run. So, first, I'm an academic, and I make every attempt to teach students and colleagues about the psychological and sociological implications of adoption um, and its impact on the whole of the adoption constellation. So, everyone, and yeah. I do that through an intersectional lens. So, I do that through discussion of adoption through race and gender and class and sexual orientation and gender identity and and disability. So, my job as an academic is to explore adoption through all of those lenses, which is needed now more than ever. Um, and and then as a researcher who's captured hundreds of stories from, from folks. Um, in the adoption constellation. So not just adoptees, but but everyone and extended yeah. family members. So, and then I come at this, you know, this place of advice through myself as an adoptee. So there are aspects of my professional life and my lived experience um, that would in, will inform the things I suggest. And so I guess I would start by saying that adoption is complicated. And it's made even more complicated by its depiction in our society and our culture, where it's largely framed by singular perspectives and it's lacking diverse voices. So, and that singular perspective reverberates in all areas of society and culture. It can be seen through film and media. Um, it also makes its way into institutional entities like social services, um, the criminal justice system, religious institutions and even education and and then the and the outcome of that is that it is either oversimplified to make it appear as though this is easy transition for everyone involved or the adoptee is often maligned or depicted as evil or maladaptive or deeply troubled or completely content and extremely grateful right so we know through decades of research and personal narratives of those in the adoption constellation that neither depiction is that simple or fully true. Right. So, um, I mean, life is not black and white and it's many shades of gray and adoption is certainly no exception to that. So, um, I'll just have one sort of anecdotal conversation I had with a, a young, um, South Asian friend of mine who has two biological children. She's I think in around her thirties. Um, 
And we were having a conversation about adoption. She did not know that I was adopted, nor that I taught courses on adoption. But she was telling me like, oh, my husband and I, like, that's so cool. My husband and I want to adopt a child from India, you know, and I said, well, why? And she was really shocked by the why, not so much like, in her mind, it seemed like the answer was obvious, right? Which was to give a child, um, an Indian child, a better life, which I'd support, um, but I wanted to press her a little further. So I really wanted to explore more deeply the whys um, and 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 the potential for social and cultural issues that an adopted child from another country, like for in her case from India, might face here in the U.S. So, you know, I was asking her, what are the issues you face as a South Asian American in the United States? And, and I asked her about her two biological children and, um, you know, what issues she thought they might experience by having a new child in the home. And, um, you know, she just sort of, her eyes were like, you know, getting big as saucers. And it wasn't because she was, um, you know, all of a sudden turned off by the idea. Um, she wasn't thinking that, um, you know, I'm never going to do this, that I'd somehow ruined the experience for her. It was more that, there was so much she hadn't explored about the process or the myriad aspects um, of adoption that she just had not considered, or maybe she'd considered, but not actually maybe thought through how you would handle those challenges. Right. right. So, yeah, I mean, our conversation wasn't long, but I, my point in bringing this up is that again, adoption is complicated. And, and when you don't have access to information about the process that allows for really critically thinking um, about you know, approaching this issue um, and approaching the idea of adopting, then it often leaves parents in the dark, adopt parents in the dark with singular social, cultural perspectives and narratives that assume an outcome of a potential adoption will either be horrible or um, perfect. Like everything will be great, right? So it's like rainbows and unicorns or a total nightmare. Right. So, you know, and it's further complicated when we're looking at interracial adoptions and international adoptions, same sex adoptions, adoptions involving disabilities, um, guardianship and um, foster care um, adoptions through the system um, and kinship care. I mean, you know, we're constructing families in very different ways than we were when I was adopted, um, you know. In the 50s or 60s, it was an era of um, the matching era where we tried to, you know, I had a sister with blonde hair and blue eyes. I had two brothers with brown hair and brown eyes. Like we were really trying to match families in order to make them passing so that nobody had to be honest about what was really happening. We can't do that anymore um, or very rarely can we try, you know, execute that. So, so you know, all this is to say that the complexity of adoption um, is real and there are elements to it in this intersectional lens when we're talking about race and all of these other social categories that I mentioned that, you know, we're, we're adoptive parents are trying to raise a child in a society where othering is really a problem. And it's a part of our history for centuries, the othering um, immigrants to this country for centuries, right? So um, that is um, an ideology that we've held for a long time, but, um, and it's not showing any signs of abating. So all this is to say is that um, 
the adoptee and adoptive parents have a lot of hurdles to face. And, um, and that hap those hurdles are there before they even an adoptee even begins exploring, trying to understand their adoptive status. Yeah, for sure. You know, they, they may never even get to that. Um, if they're trying to explain to people why their parents are the same gender or why they're a different race or why they're from another country or, um, you know, maybe why they have a disability and they have a, a biological sibling that doesn't, um, sometimes they never even get there. And the research shows that, that um, adoptive status or foster status and, and how one internalizes that and copes with it is not something young people can explore till much later in life because they're dealing with too many other things. And so then of course, so are the adoptive parents trying to help them navigate those issues around um, social categories and social, um, you know, what makes them different. And so, you know, I would just say, obviously it's not an easy journey for any member of the constellation. And so being prepared and as open to a deep understanding of the complexities is critical so that you can help both yourself and your child navigate the, the journey ahead. Um, and so, yeah, the multiple vantage points of exploring adoption is necessary, I think, before you're going to approach it. And thankfully, yes, we live in a society right now where we have access to a lot of information yeah. that can be both good and bad, but that deep dive is where the learning happens. And you can stumble upon really unusual sites, unusual blogs, unusual, you know, I mean, a lot of Facebook groups with adoptees. If you can get entry in there, you can read all kinds of stuff. And some of it is really difficult, but it's better to know, it's better to step out of your silo of information and explore as much as you can. Um, because there's something there to be learned, whether you agree with it or not, or however you internalize it is, is, you know, up to you, but to avoid it is not helpful. Um, so yeah, I think that's really where the learning happens. So I would never advise someone to adopt or not adopt. Like that's not, I, that is a very personal decision. I would just, you know, encourage a gentle and slow movement towards that decision um, and maybe finding other adoptive parents to talk to about their experiences. Um, I would not ask an adoptee or a foster um, a young adult that's under the age of 25 about their experience because they're still oftentimes figuring that out. And um, I think in my opinion, to ask any earlier than that means you're probably not gonna get an answer that's fully developed or maybe completely, I don't want to use the word honest because it would be honest to the extent that they understand, Yeah, but, um, definitely not a young person. Um, uh, cause they still are figuring that out. Um, yeah. And then I would just say, you know, as an adoptee, um, I'm not sure my advice would be much different, but I suppose I would reframe it in a way that says, I wish my adoptive parents were better equipped for the challenges that adoption brought to a family. Um, and especially issues around involuntary childlessness. So if they're that, if you're someone who's not able to have a biological child, whether it's the husband or the wife to really take the time to, um, 
uh, explore how those legitimate emotional and psychological um, experiences affect you because we know from research there as well that if those things aren't dealt with, then it can create issues with attachment Yeah, with, with your child that you decide to adopt. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure on young couples to have children. I mean, there is, and you know, women, that's like the first thing you're asked after you get married, like, when are you going to have a baby? And, you know, maybe couples can't have children. It's even almost, you know, research has also shown it's even more problematic for men who have issues of infertility because, you know, it's part of a toxic masculinity environment. We, we all just assume men can have babies, right? So, you know, the placement of blame or, and the shame that maybe comes from not being able to have a child in our culture is real. So, and I think adoptive parents don't get the resources they need um, to deal with that. Uh, and, and that's unfair. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, as an adoptee, I would say, you know, please as parents, you know, do the hard work with yourselves. Um, and in particular, like in an open adoption, you know, like understanding the birth parent, first parent experience, because if you're going to continue to stay in a connected relationship with your children and, both families, then you want to also try to understand what they're going through with relinquishment. Yeah. I mean, there's so much work to do. Um, and, you know, there's this very common, well, an article that I use in my courses where it's titled, you know, um, regular parents just have babies. They don't have to think about all this, right? Um, mm. When you can have a biological child, you just have one. And there's so much pressure on adoptive parents and, and, and they're often so lacking in the tools they need um, yeah. that it's very difficult, but we are going to continue to do it. This is a family formation strategy that we will, will always be a part of our culture. And um, as more folks face issues of infertility, we'll be designing families in this way. Yeah. I, I was recently asked what what were some of the feelings around adopting our first versus our fourth? And mm. um, I mean, we were young when we adopted our first, and I think we were we we were just elated to have a child, right? Sure. Um, and we were very ill prepared for the emotions that we would feel because we do have very open adoptions. Yeah. Um, for our daughter's birth parents who were obviously experiencing, experiencing a tremendous loss and a very difficult time. Um, and so by the time our fourth child was born again, very open relationships, um, we were much more prepared emotionally to know that, yes, this is a, this is a happy and, and great thing for our immediate family, but it's also based on a, a heart being broken and and really understanding and feeling what that means it takes a lot of work and a, and a lot a lot of um intentional connection yeah and it's very vulnerable right i mean doing that work and you know you want to focus in on just having this new little life in your life and um and 
the emotional bandwidth, right? And just bringing a new child into the home is difficult enough. And then you're like, I need to understand how a relinquishing mother feels like I'm already at my threshold. Yeah. So it's asking a lot. It asks a lot of people, um, a last asks a lot of people, but it's that doing that work, right? That there's, um, the last point I was just going to make about advice is there was, um, a researcher, a sociologist, H. David Kirk, I don't know, maybe some people be familiar with him, but he was like the the seminal researcher of adoption in the 1950s. And, you know, again, these were simple adoptions in that they were all same race, um, heterosexual couples. Uh, they weren't bound with the complexities that it is now. But, you know, it, part of his theory that came out of his research was, um, this thought of acknowledgement of difference and rejection of difference. And um, and it still plays out today. The, the successful families in his research were the ones that didn't, weren't performative, that didn't pretend like everything was real when, that we were just like every other family and we're gonna pull, and by God, we're gonna pull this off. Um, they weren't successful. They did not have good outcomes. Um, and that was much like the environment I grew up in. I mean, we didn't talk about it, ask anything about it. We didn't even talk about it amongst each other as four adopted children. We had no conversation. So, but, you know, his research showed that if you, if you acknowledge the difference, if you have conversations, like, don't just say like, oh, you know what, we're, you know, we're just like everyone else. We're just, you know, put together a little different. You're like, that's not enough because we know from having, we know kids know things. And when they go to school, they will hear things. So that um, acknowledgement of difference is super important um, because it no longer, it, it doesn't maintain secrets. Yeah. Um, no one's lying, can lie about anything. Um, everybody already knows that something is not totally copacetic based on relationships they have outside of their home. So, so let's, you know, that would be my thing is just to be honest, um, in all the ways you can be as vulnerable as it can make you, um, to be honest and ask a lot of questions, you know, being curious of your kids, like, how does this make you feel? Yeah. You know, what are you hearing? It's, you know, are you hearing, and you have to be very careful about how you couch things, of course, but the question should always come from a place of curiosity. How are you doing? Can, you know, what can I, can I do anything to help you navigate this rather than like, are you hearing things from your friends or people say, you know, you're like, be very careful, but, but approach questions with curiosity. Because I think if you do that, then kids are much more willing to answer. Yeah. And they feel safer. Like, um, I think they feel safer when you just ask out of curiosity rather than being very pointed in questions. But yeah, I think I just my point is I think re, that research from the 1950s is is still applicable today. Um that we really acknowledge that the way our family is assembled is different than other people's and um and that helps them prepare them for when they do go to school and they do hear things. You know, once they're outside of that bubble of and into school, their whole lives change. Yep. And um yeah, just immensely. So yeah, that I think his research is just important because it still matters today. Yeah. Wonderful advice. And I love that you're you're referencing that. Um in the many interviews that we've had with people, um, 
the more truth that people know and understand and can digest, um, the better it is for them. And when there's lies and secrets and deceit, it yeah. always comes out and it's never good. No. And I think, I mean, I can say from my own experience, but I think it's true somewhat across the board is kids will take that on. Yeah. Parents, if they adopt a parent or even, you know, however you're connected in an open adoption, if, if no one else is taking that on, they will. Yeah. They'll be like, what did I do? You know, is this my fault? There's all this friction or, you know, like, I mean, that's a natural thing for kids to do if it's not redirected. And, yeah. uh, and that's pretty scary. We're asking a lot of them. It and, is. Well, thank you so much. I think that was some great, great advice. I wish, I wish that I could have talked to you 15 years ago. Um, I wouldn't have known known nothing 15 years ago. Right. So don't worry about it. It's it's a process. Um, I think I'm going to combine these next two because I want to be able to talk about your research and what you're and and what you're doing, um, and have enough time left. So yeah, for sure. Um. So as we've talked, you've mentioned from your personal experience, from your interactions with others, that obviously that there are challenges and struggles around adoption. What are some of the things that you hope that people are considering or should be thinking about when it comes to some of those struggles or challenges that the adoption community faces? Well, I think, I mean, I've hit on a lot of those um, so far, like, I mean, one of the questions you did ask was about what I thought adoption education should look like. Yeah. And, um, and I pretty much have kind of covered that in the first question, but I would just say that um, the things that are really important to consider are, especially if you have a child that's um, of another race than you are, that if it's a child of color, um, that you're doing everything you can to explore resources about um, what it's like to grow, especially if you're a person who is white and um, what it's like for a kid of color to grow up in America. Um, Because you won't intuit, you will not have had that experience with white skin. And um, so doing everything you can to learn about the experiences of kids of color in our country, coupled with understanding about adoption or, uh, t- bringing a child in from, you know, that, like I said before, you may, a, a kid may never get to understanding or get to questions about their adoptive status if they can't get past issues of, of race or gender, gender identity, you know, as your, as your child grows, gets older and maybe is gender fluid um, or binary or, um, you know, or is um, not heterosexual um, maybe like you might, you and your partner might be. I mean, there are so many things to learn about raising a child in our country today. Um, they have stresses that um, go well and above the ones we had growing up. It wasn't that we didn't, but they have many more. Um, and so understanding, right, that you're adding layer on top of layer on top of layer Um as you go into bringing a child into your family, that's not biological. And so again, doing that deep dive into getting as much information as you can, um, talking to as many people as you can, um, being willing to explore 
different avenues on the internet or wherever you're searching for information, um, understanding that these adoptions now are so multi-layered and more complex than ever before. Um, so yeah, that is super important. And those resources are out there, you know, like they might not have been too terrific 10 or 15 years ago, but they are now. And, um, and it's important to be willing to understand other people's experiences. Yeah. Um, and I mean, honestly, that's one of the big reasons we've continued to do the podcast to, to share the, just the vast, <laughs> you know, a variety of experiences that people have. And the more that we can kind of pick and pull from each person's story and understand and maybe extrapolate a little bit of what that might mean is in my role as an adoptive parent or in my role as a birth parent or as an adoptee, like just understanding other people's experiences helps so much. Yeah. It's about approaching learning with empathy and compassion Absolutely. and um, understanding and um, a willingness to step outside of, I don't know, our often very siloed world of information. Yeah. Expanding your information diet is really, really important. Yeah. 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 Can't be um, in an echo chamber where you're just hearing the same things. Mm. Um, it has to be vast. And well, and especially with adoption being framed as this win-win thing. Like it is founded, like you said earlier, it is founded on loss and trauma. Yeah. Uh, it is a woman generally does not want to relinquish a child, but for all the various reasons that she does and will, there is still loss and trauma that is still undergirds the whole experience. And so to look past that, right, as part of that acknowledgement of difference, to look past that is not going to serve people very well. Yeah. Um, and so it requires a very open heart, very open heart, which I think everyone has already, right? Because you're you're willing to get on this adoption superhighway. Um, you're entering it and you wouldn't do it without an open heart, but yeah. it's not for the faint of heart. And it's not for, like you said, folks that are very siloed in their, in their world of information. Yeah. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, you mentioned that you're an adjunct professor right now that you're doing a lot of research or that you've done research regarding adoption. Um, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about that. Maybe what some of your goals are just jump in and share it with us a little bit about what you're doing research wise. So, um, yeah, I have been doing research on adoption for, I don't know, I guess a better part of 15 years around there. And I've done a lot of studies on adopt all members of the adoption constellation. So birth fathers when accessible and birth mothers and adoptive parents and adoptees, um, all kinds of adoptees, late learners, um, pretty much all of them. And, um, and they were intense, you know, they're, um, and the research was great. It served its purpose. It was, it was, it was, it was wonderful to be able to capture people's stories and, and put it out there in the world and to create, you know, more understanding if, if that happened, hopefully it did, but it's, um, this study that I'm looking at now, um, is really about trying to balance the light with the dark. Um, and it's really important to me in my, at this point in my career, that I do research that that meters out both because 
like I said earlier, you know, adoption narratives can be put into one pile of horrible experiences and one pile of everything's great, <laughs> which is just not life. So that was why the study was important was because I wanted to talk about the difficulties, but I also wanted to end conversations that I'm having with adoptees um, and, and, and folks that were guardianship or um, kinship care through the foster care system um, about their experiences, but also about the modalities they employed to heal, to become more whole, to, to, um, deal with the layers of their experiences in, um, I don't know, in a more joyful way. So the study called Nurtured by Nature, um, Adoptee and Foster Care Experiences and the Healing Power of Nature is about that exploration. It's about asking, um, you know, folks about their experiences and their struggles, but also their strengths and their hope and where that hope comes from. And, you know, like I said earlier on, I, I also, my disciplines are to teach adoption and family studies and environment. And as a, and as a photographer and with most of my subjects being in the natural world, I wanted to dovetail these two things and try to create something that was beautiful. Um, that also has an element, a creative element. So the participants have the option of either being just interviewed for the study um, about their experiences and their love of the natural world and other modalities that they've employed to help heal them heal. So it's not just nature, but it's other modalities as well, which often lands people in a space of being very creative or very spiritual or religious or whatever it is that helps them heal and be whole. So, uh, yeah. So the photographic element is that my plan is to photograph everyone in the study, which means I'll be in different parts of the country to do that. Pretty fun. Uh, yeah. I mean, I didn't really want to do that originally because it sort of undermines the whole um, environmental climate piece. Um, I mean, I don't want to politicize this of being about climate change, but I do care about my carbon footprint. And I was like, I'm going to fly around to all these places. And it just, just seems like this undermines the whole thing. But then I was like, well, I am a photographer and um, how can I not not take these pictures? So I'm going to have to be very strategic about how I do it so that I do am mindful of my carbon budget. But um, yeah, so the the study has a component of, of a couple hour interview and then um, the interview and the photographic piece of it. And it would be in spaces and nature that all these participants love. So, um, I mean, being in front of the cameras are pretty vulnerable thing, yeah. but when you're in a place where you feel safe and comfortable, it's less threatening. And, you know, it was also important to me to have, besides the element of creativity was to have, um, was knowing that the narrative for so many folks adoptees and foster and guardianship kinship care is um, a feeling of never having been seen. And so I thought, well, how, how else do you really see someone than to have their face in a photograph yeah. um, in a place that they love? So I wanted people, I want people to feel seen and be seen. It is an option. It is not a requirement. <laughs> um, obviously I can't give anonymity if a person is in an image of course, you can create an image where a person's face isn't in there, but nevertheless, it's an option if someone doesn't want to do that part, but just wants to share a narrative, then that's that's totally, totally possible as well. And, you know, my goals with the study are really, like I said, to um, to continue to be someone who 
captures other people's stories and has them leaving the interview and the photography um, as having been seen and felt seen. And that. then of course, you know, my also, my hope is that people who maybe have gotten away from their relationship to the natural world get reconnected. And I've had that happen already, you know, with a few interviews where people email me later and say, you know, I hadn't realized how much I really loved and needed to be in natural spaces until we had that conversation. And we know as we get older and we get busier and work and, you know, we, we do disconnect from the natural world as opposed to when we were children. So if I can reconnect people with nature, um, reestablish relationships or enhance relationships that are already there, um, that's a huge bonus because, you know, right now we need, the earth needs our attention. Yeah. And um, so if I can create a little world of people focusing back on the natural world or falling in love with a deeper um, then that would be awesome. I love that. So say uh, an adoptee is listening right now, if they want to learn more about your study or how they potentially can participate, where do we direct them? How can they learn? Yeah, just, um, if you can put my email at my, um, university email address in your show notes or whatever, sure, for sure. um, they can just reach out to me through email. And then the first step is just to have a short, like 30 minute, either phone conversation or zoom conversation. So I can answer some questions about the study if they have any. And then from there, we'd schedule, um, a longer format interview, um, and talk about, you know, where they are and how they would want to curate an image. And they have hundred percent, hundred percent creative license to do, you know, to photograph wherever they want to be. I mean, I don't know people's, you know, spaces that they love. So I'll just go where I'm told. Um, and, um, and experience with them, the places that they love. So, yeah. So email address is the best way to, okay. to go. We'll be, we'll be sure to put that in the show notes for today and we'll include it, include it in our social media posts as well. Um, anything else that you'd want to share about that study or that you'd want people to know there? Um, no, um, just that it's, um, like I know, this demographic is often asked, well, not often enough, but frequently asked by academics to share their story. And sometimes they don't have a whole lot of information or control about where that information goes, their information goes, their stories go. So I would just want to alleviate any fears people might have that, you know, that this study is, um, you know, going to spin off in some negative way. Um, it's really about, again, just having folks feeling safe to share their story, knowing that when they do with me, that it's safe. Um, I take, uh, very, I'm very careful with how I capture people's stories. I am very, there's a lot of humility there. I know what people are offering up sure. and the vulnerability that that is, and sometimes feels a little dangerous. So no, just knowing that the end goal of this work is hopefully to get it published. I'm not sure exactly how how or what that's going to look like, but no, the intentions are pure. Um, and uh, no, and because I care a lot and I have been given the gift of being able to do this work and um, 
um, I'm careful about how I do it. So no, I just want people to know it's a safe place and, um, and that I, I deeply, truly care about everybody and their experience because we are not a monolith. There are so many stories and they all need to be told. And, um, and I want to do that. That's wonderful. And what a, what a wonderful pursuit and purpose in uh, your personal life. I love, I love that. It's good for me right now too. And it will be sort of folded in with my trip to Italy, um, and, and sharing my own story. Um, yeah, the Italy trip was kind of really the, mm, probably the launch point for this. I just didn't really realize it right away, but yeah, no. And you know what? It's just, it's light and dark and beauty and you know it's what the world is really made of it's not black and white it is so not it's so gray and there's so much tragedy and there's also so much joy and and i think all of us everyone in the adoption constellation needs to feel more joy yeah we just do so I love that. Well, our time has passed really quickly. Yeah, I know. I'm so sorry if I. No, it's okay. It's okay. Is there anything else that you want to talk about before we wrap up? No, no, that was great. Thank you so much for being. Oh gosh, it's totally my pleasure and my honor and my privilege. So thanks for asking. Thank you. Thank you so much to Eileen for sharing all of these amazing thoughts with us and for all of your research in the adoption community. We really appreciate that and are so grateful every time we hear about research happening in the academic world that's focused on adoptees. So really enjoyed listening to this episode. What were some of your takeaways, John? I, so many, uh, but one that's coming to mind is around openness and she shared how she was in a closed adoption for 37 years and then quickly reunified and jumped into this relationship that seemed a little tumultuous. Um, And uh, just for me, it highlighted the importance for us in our specific situation that having those relationships, connections early on um, from the beginning even help create this foundation of a relationship throughout our kids' lives and having the truth out in the open from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. That there's some benefits from that. And obviously every situation is different, but for me, it's just highlighting the importance of caring for those relationships, um, nourishing them and making sure that they continue to grow over time. Yeah. With the goal of keeping the adoptee's best interests always Always. top of mind. Yeah. Yeah. That's your top goal. Yeah. I like that. I thought it was really interesting when she talked about how families and older adoptions, uh, the agencies were really looking at blending and keeping the family looking similar, right? Like that sameness. And I think it's interesting how it was kind of this way of tucking an adoption back so that people didn't know, like, you know, just kind of pushing down discussions about potential trauma and challenges and just trying to kind of squash that. And I feel like even if you do look similar to the family that you're with and there's not that biological connection, there's such an important need to have these open dialogues and not ignore those traumas. I'm really grateful that there has been a shift 
in that over time. But yeah, I thought that was an interesting thought. And when she talked about how in adoption there's such a need for having an open heart, I think is what she said, uh, to not be closed off to learning new ideas and like seeing things differently, like being open to being taught new things, knowing that you don't know everything already about adoption. I thought that was really important to talk about. It made me think of the book Mindset by Carol Dweck. It's really good. It talks about growth mindset and being open to learning more, right? Yeah, I thought that was incredible and basically ties into why we're here doing the podcast, honestly, because there's so much more for us to learn and hopefully it's benefiting others too. Yeah, there's also, I can't remember who the author of this book is, but there's also another book called Start With Why. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that thought came to my mind a lot when she was talking about her conversation with her friend who wanted to, to adopt a baby from India. Um, we need to really examine the why behind what we're doing in adoption. Yeah. Um, and she talked, I, I really appreciated the par- the portion of her conversation with me where she talked about couples who are struggling with her infertility that you really need to take care of some of those emotions obviously you can't resolve them or solve them but but, but you there need to address these issues so that you don't end up projecting those traumas onto others that's right especially yes. your child that's yeah, that's, completely that's an adopted child yeah, yeah. because i mean we've said this in in episodes way in the past but adoption does not cure infertility mm-hmm. it cures childlessness but it does not get rid of any of the maybe well what i would call baggage that some of the feelings that i've had um from infertility it doesn't it doesn't get rid of that yeah well and it's different right i feel really strongly that i love my kids just as much if not more than i would if they were my biological children but it's also a different like they have different needs, right? And they're not going to grow up and have the same passions that I have most likely. And you know, they're not going to look like my parents or you know what I mean? There's all these different factors and you need to be thinking about that and be okay with it if you're considering adopting because you're adopting someone who's not gonna share all of these similarities with you. And hopefully you can work through that beforehand and not be projecting and- yeah expecting things that aren't realistic yeah so. i i love my conversation with eileen i'm so glad that we got to chat mm-hmm. yeah yeah she was so fun to listen to as we were editing this episode again if you are an adoptee and you're interested in participating in eileen's current research uh, you can reach out to her at escahill at uccs.edu again that's e-s-k-a-h-i-l-l and that's going to be in the show notes Again, thanks so much to Eileen. We're so grateful for our conversation with her. Yeah, and thanks for being here with us and learning and growing with us every episode. Mm-hmm.